I'd like to read a couple of verses from Psalm 30. Hear, O Lord, and be gracious to me. O Lord, be my helper. You have turned for me my mourning into dancing. You have loosed my sackcloth and girded me with gladness, that my soul may sing praise to you and not be silent. O Lord, my God, I will give thanks to you forever. We do give you thanks, Lord, that in every and all situations, you are present with your people. And Father, as we look at Saul and then we look at David and we see the contrast between these two men and how you worked in, in their lives in, in different ways and yet you were not different. It's how they reacted to you and how they dealt with the things that were um, given to them by you. Father, I pray that we will learn the lessons that will enable us to serve you effectively in the circumstances in which you have placed us. We know that, Lord, you grant strength. Your promises are, are never uh, uh, canceled as we walk obediently with you. And so we trust in you. We pray that you'll bless this hour for each one of us and, and the service which is, uh, being, is taking place right now and the other classes uh, here. We trust you to, to work in each life according to your great plan. As we submit to your authority this day, in Jesus' name, amen. If you'll turn to the 16th chapter of 1 Samuel, I would like to read verses 14 through 23 to begin with this morning. 1 Samuel 16, 14. Now the spirit of the Lord departed from Saul, and an evil spirit from the Lord terrorized him. Saul's servants then said to him, Behold, now, an evil spirit from God is terrorizing you. Let our Lord now command your servants who are before you. Let them seek a man who is skillful, a skillful player on the harp. And it shall come about when the evil spirit from God is on you, that he shall play the harp with his hands and you will be well. So Saul said to his servants, provide for me now a man who can play well and bring him to me. Then one of the young men answered and said, behold, I have seen a son of Jesse the Bethlehemite who is a skillful musician, a mighty man of valor, a warrior, one prudent in speech, a handsome man, and the Lord is with him. So Saul sent messengers to Jesse and said, send me your son David who is with the flock. And Jesse took a donkey loaded with bread and a jug of wine and a young goat and sent them to Saul by David his son. Then David came to Saul and attended him. And Saul loved him greatly and he became his armor bearer. And Saul sent to Jesse, saying, Let now David stand before me, for he has found favor in my sight. So it came about, whenever the evil spirit from God came to Saul, David would take the harp and play it with his hand. And Saul would be refreshed and be well, and the evil spirit would depart from him. Last week we looked at this uh, passage to some extent, and, and I think it bears repeating that we have here um, in this what, what is troubling to many people, the idea that an evil spirit could come from God. We have to understand the evil spirit did not issue forth from God. God is only the source of, of good, and from him comes the Holy Spirit. But God can allow, or God can actually order a spirit to do whatever he wants it to do. And so the, spirit, the evil spirit is sent upon Saul, or allowed by God to attack Saul, whichever it really turned out to be, 
we must understand that God did not create this evil spirit for this purpose. Also, we th I think it's important for us to understand that this is not a, a cultural understanding. We, of course, in our realm today, we live in a society that is very non-spiritual and in many aspects of it so secular that they don't even believe in the spirit realm or that there is any such thing as an evil spirit. And, and some would look at this and say, well, this is just their simplistic way in their day of trying to explain a serious condition of depression that came upon Saul. Well, I think it's more than that because we have Samuel, I believe, the author here, who is, is a prophet of God, who has insight from God himself, who is inspired by God to write this. So I think it's more than cultural. I think that we're talking about a situation which in this particular instance, an evil spirit, a, a being in the spiritual realm was actually used to perpetrate or to bring upon Saul this depression. As I mentioned last time, this does not mean that all depression is the product of an evil spirit. But in Saul's case, I believe that that's exactly what's being said here. Now, also I pointed out last week that because his servants say, Behold now, an evil spirit from God is terrorizing you. <laughs> I, I don't think that the servants had this kind of insight where they could see that that was true. And, and they were guessing. And, and they were making a cultural statement here. And so they've asked for a musician to come. Someone who played the lyre, harp, the kinner, as it was in Hebrew. And so we have one of the young men who happened to, <laughs> happened to know David. No, I, I don't think it was a happen to. I think that God had placed a man in Saul's court who knew David because God planned one day to bring David into Saul's presence. I think it's very important for us to note that in verse 18, the young man David is described. We're told that he was a skillful musician, that he was a mighty man of valor, a warrior, one prudent, in speech, a handsome man, and one with whom the Lord was. Which seems clearly, I think, to indicate that it had been several months or, or possibly even longer since David had been anointed and we're told that the Spirit of God came upon him so that it was recognized that the Spirit of God was upon this man, David. And this young man in, in Saul's court had seen this and had recognized this. I also pointed out last time that I believe as a result from this statement that David was not the child that is sometimes uh, described here. That he was a young man, that he was an adult, uh, yes, young adult, but nevertheless I believe he was physically full grown at the time uh, that he is described. Otherwise I don't believe that the term mighty man of valor or a warrior, which I mentioned last time that the Hebrew word translated warrior means an experienced warrior, someone who has already proven himself in battle, which is very unlikely if he was like 12 or 13, you know, just had passed bar mitzvah and, and was, you know, out doing his thing. He was young, but not a wee little kid. Saul was convinced that whoever this young man was, he had never met David before, but he was going by the a description of, of his trusted uh, counselor in his court there, he thought, well, this, this young man could very well help me, so please bring him. So he sent messengers to go to Bethlehem and to ask for David. What is interesting here is that in the request, Saul says, send me David, the one who is tending the flock. 
Why would he say that? Well, this would imply, first of all, that the young man who had described David to him had told him that he was a shepherd. And, and secondly, of course, uh, Jesse had eight sons. So just that there was no confusion as to which one he was asking for, the one that is attending the flock. Jesse, of course, was honored to have the king send a message to him and to ask him for the honor of his son serving him. And so Jesse responded, as we read in the passage there, with loading up a donkey with bread, gifts of bread and wine and a young goat. So David arrived at the court of Saul. Now we have to understand the court of Saul, this is not a royal palace with everybody walking around in silken garments. Uh, I, I think we're talking about a fairly small entourage here in probably relatively primitive environments. No palace had been built yet. But there was a, a group of individuals who were committed to Saul. And so David became one of, of those individuals. And he played his lyre, his harp for Saul. Every time Saul was, was being oppressed and was falling into, into depression, David would pray, would play his liar. And I think, of course, he served Saul in whatever way Saul needed him to. The result was Saul received help. Saul found that the spirit uh, that was oppressing him was quieted or, or left him when David played his music and probably sang, um, possibly sang psalms of which he would later uh, write down many. And so we're told that Saul came to love David. And as an expression of his love, he gave to David a very uh, important position, and that was the position of armor bearer. Now, Saul didn't have just one armor bearer, but the position of being armor bearer was a very important position, and it was an honor to be the king's armor bearer. Because in order to be the king's armor bearer, you had to be one who was exceptional in the use of weapons. You couldn't be just some little kid who came along, didn't know which end of the sword you used, you know. You had to be a, a person who knew how to use weapons. Because as armor bearer, you not only carry the shield, you carry weapons. Your job is to help defend the person that you're carrying the armor for. And, and so this required skill. It, it required trustworthiness. And it required that the king knew that you would give your life for him. You would give your life for him. You're his armor bearer. You're out there and you will deflect all that might harm the king as much as you possibly can. And he has to trust you to the place where his life is in your hands. So we're talking about a very important position here. Thaw, uh, Saul thought so highly of David that he made him one of his more intimate servants. I think when Saul was in his fits, of depression, he would probably scatter everybody, tell everybody to go away and just have David there alone uh, playing and uh, if, if so, singing maybe also. He always wanted David nearby because he never knew when one of these fits would come upon him, whenever the spirit would attack him. And so David had to remain near so that uh, he could play for Saul. I think this was a memorable time for David I think it was a memorable, time, a memorable time for David because, first of all, we need to think David knew that Saul was a man who had had the Spirit of God on him. He certainly also knew, because it was somewhat public, that uh, Saul and Samuel had had a falling out. 
And, and he certainly knew from observing Saul that Saul was not a man of God. He was not walking with, the way, with God. And he was experiencing these attacks of the evil one. And so I think David saw the contrast between a man who had at one time walked with God and now a man from whom the Spirit of God had been taken and, and who was being oppressed by a demon. And I think this encouraged David to later pen one of the psalms that we may read more than any other psalm because we empathize with David and understand what he was saying after his terrible sin in, uh, with Uriah and uh, Bathsheba. David wrote the 51st Psalm. Let me just read a few verses from it at verse 10, where David wrote, Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me away from, from your presence, and do not take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation, and sustain me with a willing spirit. The second phrase of verse 10, he says, Renew a steadfast spirit within me. This, of course, would stand in stark contrast to Saul, who was here, and then he was there, and then he was here, and then he was there. Saul was a man who was not faithful, he was not consistent, he was not steadfast. And yet as we begin to look at the life of this young man, David, we tend to have our view of him colored by the Bathsheba-Uriah situation, by the time when he called for a census of the people, when, when God had said no census and, and he was punished. And we, we tend to look at the very evil things in David's life. But the fact that we emphasize those, I think, illustrates the basic consistency of his life. In Saul's life, it's kind of like, so he's done something evil. That's kind of the normal course, isn't it? But, but for David, it was so startling out of character uh, with him. And so we, we tend to, to think of that more. But in David's case, and, and as we look at, at this, um, this particular chapter and some of the later chapters, we find uh, a man of, of humility. We find a man uh, of consistency. We, we find a man who is literally after God's own heart, so much the opposite of Saul, a man of patience a man of diligence, uh, so many good things in his life. I, I, I think the fact that uh, his life had marks, mar, Mars in it helps us to realize he was human and that uh, he was not so different uh, from what we are. I think this whole account of, uh, of Saul in, in this passage that we read is a powerful lesson to us. It might be argued, of course, that if we have been born again by the power of the indwelling Holy Spirit, that the Spirit of God will not depart from us. However, I think it's very obvious from Scripture that you and I can live in such a way that we grieve the Spirit of God. We can live in such a way that we give the devil a foothold in our lives. Simply because we've been born again by the Spirit and the Spirit of God dwells within us doesn't mean that, uh, that we are impregnable to the enemy. He can still gain a foothold because we have yielded to him, because we have grieved the Spirit of God. And the effect is very similar, I think, to what happened to Saul. It isn't exactly the same, but it's similar in its effect, in, in the way we feel about it, because we can become extremely depressed. 
and tormented in our spirit. Because God, has, God seems to be so far away, millions of miles away. I, you know, I pray and, and the prayers bounce off the ceiling kind of feeling. It's not, of course, because if we're truly born again, God has taken His Holy Spirit away from us. But it's because we have shut the door and we're not listening to the Holy Spirit. We've grieved Him. God is, of course, not millions of miles away. He's only a prayer away. God is only a prayer away. When we repent and confess our sin, He restores our fellowship with Him. And we again sense the nearness and the empowerment of His Holy Spirit. Ephesians chapter 4. You'll notice that what I said today is that some will say that. I'm not here trying to argue predestination versus, you know, I'm, I'm not here dealing with Calvinism versus West, Wesleyanism here today. Because there are those who will say that, yes, as born-again Christians, you can lose the Holy Spirit and you can become unborn again and lost. And I'm not going to deal with that issue here today because it's still being kicked back and forth across the uh, theological playing field and has been for 2,000 years. In, in uh, Ephesians 4, verse 25, we read, Therefore, laying aside falsehood, speak truth, each one of you with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. Be angry, yet do not sin. Do not let the sun go down in your anger, and do not give the devil an opportunity. So, so it's obvious that as a believer who remains a believer, it's, you, you can allow the devil, I can allow the devil to have an opportunity in my life. Let him who steals steal no longer, but rather let him labor, performing with his own hands what is good, in order that he may have something to share with him who has need. Let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth, but only such a word as is good for edification, according to the need of the moment, that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and, and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with malice. And be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving each other just as God in Christ also has forgiven you. So I think that verse 30 is a pretty important uh, key here. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God. It's possible for you and for me to do things that grieve the Spirit of God. Who is this Spirit? By, he's the one who has sealed us to the day of redemption. The purpose of a seal is to guarantee that something will remain as it has been sealed. Arguments go one way or another, but I think the point of it is, regardless of what we believe about eternal security or <laughs> eternal insecurity, whichever way one wants to view it, that it's possible for us to grieve the Spirit of God as Christians, and it's possible for us to give the foothold, a foothold to the devil as Christians. And in both cases, I think we res, uh, it will result in our being tormented in our spirits because the Holy Spirit of God within us is going to contest with that, contest us on those areas. It's going to convict us. And until we actually um, submit and, and, and repent and, and allow Him to cleanse us, we're going to have a, a torment in our spirit. Maybe even a, a depression, I don't know. You know that can vary from one person to the next. Let's read on in 1 Samuel in chapter 17. 
because this is taking us into the chapter that more people know about <laughs> in the Old Testament than just about any other account. Uh, it's a chapter of Scripture which has lent to our language a word which means big, <laughs> Goliath. We say that is a Goliath of an event, you know, uh, we mean huge. Well, that's a guy's name. Well, let's read the first section here, chapter 17. Now, the Philistines gathered their armies for battle, and they were gathered at Soko, which belongs to Judah. And they camped between Soko and Azekah in Ephesdamine. And Saul and the men of Israel were gathered and camped in the valley of Elah and drew up in battle array to encounter the Philistines. And the Philistines stood on the mountain stood on the mountain on one side while Israel stood on the mountain on the other side with a valley in between them. Then a champion came out from the armies of the Philistines named Goliath from Gath, whose height was six cubits and a span. And he had a bronze helmet on his head and he was clothed with scale armor which weighed 5,000 shekels of bronze. He also had bronze greaves on his legs and a bronze javelin slung between his shoulders. And the shaft of his spear was like a weaver's beam, and the head of the spear weighed 600 shekels of iron. His shield carrier also walked before him. And he stood and shouted to the ranks of Israel and said to them, Why do you come out to draw up in battle array? Am I not the Philistine and you the servants of Saul? Choose a man for yourselves and let him come down to me. If he is able to fight with me and kill me, then we will become your servants. But if I prevail against him and kill him, then you shall become servant, our servants and serve us. Again, the Philistine said, I defy the ranks of Israel this day. Give me a man that we may fight together. When Saul and all Israel heard these words of the Philistine, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. Back in chapter 14, Saul and Jonathan had defeated the Philistines and had driven them out of the mountains and back into the land of Philistia. Specifically in the 46th verse of the 14th chapter, we read this. Then Saul went up from pursuing the Philistines, and the Philistines went to their own place. Here we are now in chapter 17, possibly a couple of years later, and the Philistines have found a new champion, a man named Goliath. So they've again moved against Israel. Now, not as far into Israel as they had before, uh, when, when uh, Saul chased them out. But nevertheless, they've moved right up to the border of Israel and, and they've arrayed their army and they're challenging Israel and Israel understands this. Now, why are the Philistines doing this at this point? I mean, Goliath wasn't just born yesterday. You know, I, the, Goliath's been around for a while. But now they're using him as their point man. Why are they doing this now? Is it because they have heard that Saul and Samuel have had a falling out? And that Saul is no longer being counseled and advised by the man of God? Is it because they have discovered or heard that Saul is, is, in a, is in the depths of depression? Well, we don't know. But there's someone who did know, who certainly is behind that. Satan certainly knew that Saul was no longer being guided by Samuel. And Satan knew that Saul was depressed. And so Satan could easily have been the instigator of this movement and certainly was a major player in bringing the Philistines to an act of aggression. Now, if you've never been to um, Israel, you um, can't see the picture I can see in my mind right now of the scene of this encounter. 
we're talking about an area right on the border over here between the, the inside the red line is the kingdom of Saul and over here is Philistia and here's Soko right here and th they've they placed the red line at a time after <laughs> Goliath because actually at the time we're talking about Azekah is located right about I can't hold this thing very still but right about there and the border went between them so the border was over about five miles this way at the time we're talking about. So between Soka and Ezekiel, which are only three miles apart, was the border. Soko was in the land of Judah, was an Israelite town. Ezekiel, which is a tell, it's, it's a flat-topped mound uh, which towers over this part of the region, is to the west of Soko and is, is much larger and more impressive than Soko happened to be. That was a, a Philistine town at the particular time that we're talking about. The Elah Valley is, is this valley right here, this light-colored area you see right through here. That's the Elah Valley. Uh, both Soko and Ezekiel are on the south side of the Elah. The Elah is a creek, a brook. They would, might call it a river, but it's not a river in any sense that you would think of a river. It dries up in the summertime, so you know, in, in Arabic it would be a wadi. The scripture that we read here mentions that, says that between Soka and Ezekiel in Ephes Damim, well, Ephes Damim is, uh, is kind of a colloquialism. It uh, refers to the area here uh, between the two cities, and it, it's what it's saying is that this is a notorious area for battles back and forth because Ephes Damim means boundary of blood, border of blood, buddy, a bloody border, if you will. And so obviously there had been many clashes between the Israelites and the Philistines at this point historically, and so it had gained this uh, particular name. The Israelites were camped to the northwest of Soka, or on the other side of there, and Ezekiel is over here, and the Philistines were camped on the southeast of the Elah. Uh, both, they were camped on opposite sides of the Elah. Even though both towns are on the same side, the Israelites were on the north side of the creek and the Philistines were camped on the south side of the brook Elah. We're told in this passage that Saul was in command of, the, uh, of his army here. Now, a couple of years before, the Philistines had been totally routed by Saul and Jonathan. And so they were uncertain of victory here, even though they had a giant with them. So they decided to use Goliath as a psychological weapon here to intimidate the Israelites. And to some degree it worked. He came out and postured and, you know, flexed his muscles and shook his weapons and his fist at Israel and bellowed out in a loud voice, send me somebody over here, you know, I'll make mincemeat out of him. You know, give me a man that, that we might fight. Who are you guys anyway? A bunch of chickens? I'm filling in here, of course, but that's, that's what's implied. That, that's what is was happening here. And this went on for 40 days, morning and evening. Goliath liked clockwork come out, you know, whatever time in the morning, uh, to, to yell his, his uh, challenge, and then in the evening he would yell his challenge again. Well, the scripture gives us a description of this man, Goliath, and it's quite amazing. We're told that he's six cubits and a span. Well, a cubit was the measure from the tip of the elbow to the end of the middle finger. That's, that's a cubit. It was usually the, 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 that distance on the king, whatever society we're talking about. Roughly, 
given the fact that we're talking about people who lived at a time other than Goliath, of course, who were smaller than the average American. And so, conservatively speaking, we're talking about an 18-inch cubit, approximately. Now, in Saul's case, since he was bigger than anybody else, it might have been a little longer. But a span is this distance between the end of the thumb and the end of the finger. And what is interesting is that two spans make a cubit. So you're looking at nine inches there and 18 inches altogether, which is basically that length. Well, now I'm using conservative figures because there are, you go back 100 years and they say the cubit was 21 inches. Well, that makes Goliath even bigger yet. <laughs> but let's, let's go with these conservative figures. He was 9'9". Nine, nine. Nine foot nine inches. Now, mm, he could probably make his way in the NBA. You know, just kind of bloop. <laughs> Stuffing the ball would just be a matter of letting it roll off the end of his <laughs> hand into the basket, you know, kind of deal. Plus, I think given the other dimensions of this man, uh, he'd have been pretty much a solid wall by himself in the middle there, you know. <laughs> People banging against him, you know, would have been uh, pretty difficult. But... I, I hear there's a, a fellow in China they're trying to get over here is seven foot six. <laughs> now that's that's still two feet, two inches shorter or three inches shorter, but seven foot six is still <coughs> a strain on my neck. He was dressed in a bronze helmet and in bronze chain mail, bronze armor. Said scale armor. It, it's uh, chain mail was made in different ways. Usually it was made in rings. Uh, that were sewed on so they overlapped, or little plates of metal that were sewed on so they overlapped, whichever it was. Uh, here, we're told in this passage uh, the weight of his chain mail, and that comes to transliterating uh, into English uh, units today. That's about 125 pounds. So he had a 125 pound uh, coat of armor hanging over his uh, body, and a bronze helmet on his head, and bronze greaves on the front of his shins here, and a javelin, and, and a spear, and a sword, and a very loud mouth. <laughs> we're, we're told that his spear was like a weaver's beam. Well, what they're talking about is the, is the large loom, the two-man loom that existed in those days, where he had two uprights and a cross beam that came across like this that supported the, 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 the loom. And the, those uprights and crossbeam were uh, between two and two and a half inches uh, in diameter. So we're, we're talking about, you know, this guy's got a spear that's just fill my whole hand up just holding the thing, you know. And on the end of it was an iron head which weighed 15 pounds. And in front of him he had a shield carrier to kind of fend off in case somebody decided. <laughs> it reminds me of uh, if you ever saw one of the... Uh, Indiana Jones ones, where this guy's in front of him doing all these funny things with a sword, and he just pulls out his gun and blows the guy away, you know? <laughs> That's one of the funniest moments in movies to me, but, but Goliath could have been felled by a well-placed javelin or a well-placed arrow. So, I mean, guy was big, but you could still stop him if you really knew what you're doing, as we're going to see a little later on when David comes along and uh, dings him one. But to go out and combat him the way he wanted to fight, which was spear to spear, sword to sword, <laughs> this guy was slightly outclassing everybody else uh, with his size and, and the weapons. It'd be sort of like taking an Abrams M60 tank uh, up against a Humvee, you know, I mean, you know, not, not exactly good odds. 
here. Goliath was a member of the Anakim clan from the Philistine city of Gath. We are told that here. Let me go back for a moment to Joshua chapter 11. In Joshua chapter 11, in verse 21, we read, Then Joshua came at that time and cut off the Anakim from the hill country of Hebron, from the hill country, from Hebron, from Debir, and from Anab, and from all the hill country of Judah, and from all the hill country of Israel, Joshua utterly destroyed them with their cities. There were no Anakim left in the land of the sons of Israel. Only in Gaza, Gath, and Ashdod some remained. So we're dealing with one of those who remains, and he is in Gath. Now, who in the world are the Anakim? Well, they are members of a mysterious race which the scripture calls the Nephilim. And I'd like to read a statement made by Moses concerning the Nephilim in chapter 13 of Numbers, which also has to do with the potential conquest. This, of course, is after the spies have spied out the land and 10 of them say, no, we can't go in because there are giants in the land. And Caleb and Joshua say, yes, we can. Verse 30 of Numbers 13, Then Caleb quieted the people before Moses and said, We should by all means go up and take possession of it, for we shall surely overcome it. But the men who had gone up with him said, We are not able to go up against the people, for they are too strong for us. So they gave out to the sons of Israel a bad report of the land which they had spied out, saying, The land through which we have gone in spying it out is a land that devours its inhabitants. All the people whom we saw in it are men of great size, which is, of course, a great exaggeration. There were just very few of these. There also we saw the Nephilim. The sons of Anak are part of the Nephilim. And we became like grasshoppers in our own sight, and so we were in their sight. So obviously there was a clan of these people, maybe a race of these people who lived in the land. There's a lot of debate about the Nephilim because the Nephilim are also mentioned back in Genesis chapter 6 where it talks about conditions just before the flood. And some people link them together with the statement that's made there about angels coming down and cohabiting with men and this kind of thing. Well, I think what we're talking about here is a race of Canaanites who were, was of, which was, of extraordinary physical size. This race of Canaanites does not survive the Israelite uh, period. In other words, the Israelites will destroy the remaining Anakim, Nephilim. We know that this has already happened in Israel itself because we read it in Joshua. And now it's going to happen relative to Gath and Ashdod and the other cities, Gaza, because we read other accounts of other Nephilim being destroyed by the followers of David. So David kind of sets the path or the course and then others come along and uh, wipe them out. And, and of course, there is no evidence of this race passing down into even early, even into medieval times, let alone into modern times. Well, Goliath knew that he was virtually invincible in single combat. He knew that if somebody from Israel came out to fight him, spear to spear, sword to sword, shield to shield, he had all the advantages. And so he issues this, com uh, this, this challenge, which we read about there in the eighth verse. He stood and shouted the ranks of Israel. And, and in verse 9 he says, 
that, uh, well, in verse 8, he says, Choose a man for yourselves and let him come down to me. And if he's able to fight with me and kill me, then we'll serve you. If I kill him, then you will serve us. This is not a new concept, by the way. The idea of settling a dispute by champions is, is age old. It's happened throughout time. When rather than two kings wasting their armies and killing thousands of guys in a big bloody battle, they would sometimes each send their champions out and they would both agree ahead of time that whichever champion won, that side was victorious and the other side was defeated. That was a, a pre-agreed option. And then the two champions would fight. If any of you have ever seen the classic film El Cid, uh, you've seen that concept at work in medieval Spain. And, and it really did happen. In, in that sense. And, and of course, it's a much less wasteful way of settling a dispute. <laughs> now, of course, as we're going to find, the Philistines will not live up to their side of the bargain here. But nevertheless, that was the way it was uh, supposed to be and was often practiced. Now, for Israel, though, although this was a, an acceptable practice and, and not a new uh, thought for them, for them at this point, on this occasion, to accept the challenge and to agree to this was tantamount, in, in their minds at least, to conceding defeat because who did they have that could possibly defeat Goliath? The Philistines knew they held all the cards, as we would say today. They knew there was nobody in Israel, not even Saul. Saul was head and shoulders taller than everybody else, but was he going to go out and fight Goliath? No way. We also have to keep in mind here, this, this I think is important, to realize that the bulk of the army on both sides is made up of levies, of people who have been recruited and, and given a weapon and say, hey, come and fight. And we're not talking about trained professionals here. There's a small core in the army, Goliath being one of them, who were trained professionals. Saul had his few men around him who were trained. They, they, were, to, they were like the standing army. But the vast bulk of the army is just made up of minutemen. You know, you blow the whistle and the guy grabs his gun, runs out the door, so to speak, kind of deal, as it was in Boston in the 1770s. So it was here. Day after day, Goliath came out of the Philistine ranks and he walked down the slope towards the brook and he stood there and looked at the ranks of Israel who gathered because this is another day of possible battle and you know, raised his fist and shouted his words, I defy the ranks of Israel this day. Give me a man that we may fight together. The reaction amongst the Israelites was totally predictable. The scripture says they were dismayed and they were afraid. Even Saul was not willing to take on Goliath. That was his job. Saul was king. Israel wanted a king because they wanted not only to be like other nations in other senses, but because they wanted to have someone who was there to protect them and to stand up for their nationhood. This was Saul's job. And Saul was not too enthusiastic about dealing with Goliath toe-to-toe, nose-to-belly, <laughs> or whatever it would have been for him. He knew he didn't stand a chance. This scenario was repeated for 40 days, evening and morning, morning and evening. Saul's reluctance, I think, was not based solely upon his fear of losing his own life. That was a factor, certainly, but I think the bigger factor was, and we can give Saul credit for this, and that is he knew that he would lose the battle. And if they made the agreement, if he, if he made the agreement and knew he was going to lose the battle, he was in effect turning his nation over to serve the Philistines. 
And he and Jonathan had just defeated and routed the Philistines to get rid of these oppressors and to bring a new day of freedom to Israel. And so he's just going to walk out and hand it over to the Philistines. No, he wasn't about to do that. Since Israel had no champion, or at least didn't think they had a champion, to match Goliath, Saul, I believe, was searching frantically for another option. I think he longed for Samuel right about then. Oh, Samuel, where are you? He needed some good advice. You know, I think that this in itself is a testimony to all who stand in positions of authority. You've got to have good counselors. I don't care if you're, well, of course, the President of the United States has set a good example for us, I think. But, uh, you know, if you're a senior pastor of the church, if you're president of a college or whatever you are, you need good counselors. You need people around you whom you can trust and uh, from whom you get advice and to whom you listen. Because one man, one woman, is not wise enough to make all right decisions when so much rides on the decision. But God had prepared this scene for different purposes than the Philistines thought or the Israelites thought or that Saul thought. God had created this whole scenario for one purpose, and that was to elevate his exalt, the, the one he, that he has anointed to be king. Not that David was at that point going to be proclaimed king or even made to be understood as heir apparent to the throne. But this was the point in time when he was going to take this young man out of obscurity and put him center stage in Israel. I don't know if you can think about this, but can you consider any other situation where anybody is any more the absolute object of everybody's attention? Tens of thousands of warriors on both sides silently watching as this young man goes out to deal with this gigantic enemy. And of course, we focus on it through, I mean, how many millions and billions have focused on it through the pages of Scripture down through time? Who has ever been a greater focus except Jesus Christ himself? All by himself, standing there alone for the whole world to view what God would do. What would God do? God would do a mighty thing. Scripture tells us that God uses the foolish things of the world to confound the wise. We live in a day and age when so many are proclaiming themselves to be wise. And they are, in effect, fools in so many situations. And we need to keep our eyes on Scripture and upon the Lord because even though it's laughed at by the academics of this world and, and those who know so much better, it's the truth. It's better to believe the truth and be laughed at than to believe a lie and be exalted. And David, of course, is a man who believes the truth. And, and just, just some, I think, believe that he's a child here and that he just does what, I mean, if he had any sense, he wouldn't do this. You walk out and fight this giant like no big deal. I, I think David had calculated this whole thing. And the calculations were, my God is bigger than that giant. And he went forth in that faith. So I think what we're going to have to do as we study this passage is believe in a man of great faith in God. Well, in two weeks, we'll pick up there.